Uh, before I read, or actually before I review from last week, let me pray. Father, we, um, we thank you so much for drawing us here to this place and um, for the, the time that we've already had to visit with one another, to share requests and praises with one another so that we know how to pray for one another. Um, the time that we've already spent singing and worshiping you. And uh, here's what we're counting on. We've come to this place to hear from your word, to have our hearts and minds strengthened to do what's pleasing to you, and then also to have our hearts and minds encouraged as we make our way through life in this sin-fallen world which is full of so many discouragements, so many bodily aches and pains, um, and the inexorable end, which is death. We need to be encouraged, Lord, so we pray that even as we tackle a text which carries in it the, the, the hint of a threat, we pray that you would so work, Holy Spirit, in this room that we would really behold Jesus. And for every look that we take at ourselves and our own neediness, we would take two at at the wonderful Savior. And we pray for this in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we covered Galatians 5, 19, 20, and 21. Um, and, and basically what we're doing is we're exploring this concept of practical sanctification. Um, I led off this whole section of Galatians talking about um, what, what I call positional sanctification. I didn't invent that. I call it that. I agree with theologians and, and uh, commentators who refer to positional sanctification as that which takes place when we are saved initially out of sin There is this promise that we will be perfected and be like Jesus, um, but we don't have the experience of being perfected and being like Jesus yet. However, the way that God views us is as if we were Christ. We are robed in his righteousness, so we are positionally set apart and sanctified at the initiation of our salvation. And then we began, as we got into Paul's lists, to explore the idea of practical sanctification. So what does it look like as you walk with God and continue on in the path of righteousness? How does your life more and more and more reflect the perfect picture of the Savior? Okay, so we made our way through Paul's non-exhaustive list last week of the deeds of the flesh. And I made the point, it's not exhaustive. This is not every way that you could maybe sin and you know transgress the will and desire and law of God. It's just a shotgun blast in the general direction from Paul of the deeds of the flesh. Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, these are all, these all easily fall into the category of licentiousness. Um, licentiousness being basically this flippant, indifferent attitude about sin because what you claim if you're a licentious person is that it doesn't matter if I do this thing because God will forgive me. 
So sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, all licentiousness, and then idolatry and sorcery. Now, th this is a little less obvious, but when you, um, when you talk about idolatry and sorcery in more modern terms, it makes sense that it would fall in the category of licentiousness because idolatry is what happens when we are given something by God to enjoy and our affections, our emotional attachment terminates on the gift rather than the one who gave the gift. That's idolatry. So <clears throat> the way that I illustrated this was by pointing out in Exodus when the Israelites are, or the Hebrews are leaving Egypt, uh, they plunder the Egyptian because the Egyptians are paying them to go. Like here, take silver, take gold, get out of here. Um, and then I can't help but wonder where all of the gold that they used to make the golden calf might have come from later on when Moses is up on the mountain, right? That's idolatry. You take the gift of God and you use it as a, a thing to worship rather than a reason to worship him. Um, and then uh, sorcery, if you just, you know, the original Greek, pharmakia, uh, pharmacy, drugs. I just said, let's be careful what, what we take, what we consume. Um, and I made, real quick, I, I'm not going to retread the whole sermon, but real quick, I just said two things. I said, number one, just because somebody has letters after their name doesn't mean you should take whatever they tell you. Number two, just because somebody has pastor before their name doesn't mean you shouldn't take whatever they tell you. you we need to be thinking, rational people who read and explore and understand for ourselves what it is that we're ingesting, okay? Um, drunkenness and carousing, obviously licentiousness. Like if you're out getting drunk and fighting on Saturday night, you're not going to come brag about it at church, but you might feel good about it, I guess, if you're a licentious person. Now, but more difficult to understand are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, factions, and envy. All also licentiousness. Um, and once you properly understand what's meant by each of the items in Paul's list, you, you can then make a distinction between these deeds of the flesh being remaining sin and these deeds of the flesh being a reigning sin. And I think it's important to make that distinction because <clears throat> every Christian inadvertently stumbles into all of these right. on some level. There's nobody in this room who doesn't struggle a bit with enmity, being at odds with somebody else and giving yourself permission to be at odds with someone else. Um, if Jesus in John 15 can call me a friend, who should I not be able to look upon with friendly eyes? Right? Uh, any Christian can inadvertently stumble into these deeds of the flesh, but I think that Paul's condemnatory remark in verse 21 I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Taken in context with the rest of what Scripture says about remaining sins, it's a judgment of those whose lives are marked by patterns of continually practicing such evil. There's a difference between stumbling and diving headlong in, right? Right? 
A reigning sin is something over which you have no control in your life. It takes hold of you and you do whatever it wants. A remaining sin is something you find yourself going again and yes, and again, yes, and again to the throne of grace for mercy for, but you are at war with it. It's not a welcome visitor in your home. So that was first. We explained the deeds of the flesh. Second, I suggested that contrary to popular Western evangelical culture, people who practice these things are not exercising their liberty. And I want to make sure I do incorporate into the fold of everybody that I'm condemning for this wrong thing. I want to incorporate in the Calvinist um, because I am an avowed one, right? I'm a five-pointer. I hope that you still like me and your interactions with me haven't betrayed that I'm a five-point Calvinist, but I am. The problem that I have is a lot of my brothers who are five-point Calvinists find it permissible to overindulge in things which they have liberty to do, but they do it to the point where it appears they are enslaved to it. So when I say Western evangelical Christian culture, I'm including my folks in that as well, but not myself. Um, Just people that I know. Um, There's a difference between exercising liberty and being licentious. So I'm going to say this one other way, and I hope that you all understand and, and, and appreciate to a certain degree. It's not manipulative what I'm doing, but I think it is a good teaching practice to last week fire off a blast of all of this information and then this week reorganize it and then fire off a new blast of information and then next week reorganize it. Thus, we're always building and overlapping so that we all take something away from these messages. So I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but I am going to reorganize last week's sermon a little bit. we, we are not given freedom in Christ to fulfill the deeds of the flesh. We are not given freedom in Christ to fulfill the deeds of the flesh. We are given freedom in Christ from fulfilling the deeds of the flesh. When I say that a Christian has two desires, if any of you are cerebral philosophizers, You should take issue with me saying that because you would argue from a philosophical position that everybody that has a functioning conscience has two desires, right? From the earliest of ages, you kind of knew what the right thing to do was. You just don't always do it. So what's the distinction? When I say a Christian has two desires and you think, boy, before I was ever a Christian, I had some semblance of a desire to do what was moral. What do I mean when I say there are two desires? Well, both of these desires of the lost person, the desire to do what is right and the desire to do what is wrong, both of these have a common factor. They are both your desires. You have but one desire and expresses itself in a myriad of ways. There's all kinds of things that you might engage in with your one desire, but it's yours. It belongs exclusively to you. The Christian is one who has their own desires and also the desires of the Holy Spirit. 
And these are what find war with one another. And I think I can illustrate this best with a reference to uh, Odysseus and the sirens. For those of you who don't know or have forgotten in the years since high school and would rather not be reminded, um, Odysseus is the main character in Homer's poem, The Odyssey. Um, And I'll spare you the full synopsis and just mention there are podcasts on the subject if you're interested in revisiting it but don't want to read it. Um, When Odysseus is, is about to leave Circe's island, she warns him of the sirens. Before he leaves, she tells him, the sirens bewitch everybody who approaches them. There is no homecoming for the man who draws near them unawares, for with their high, clear song, the sirens bewitch him as they sit there in a meadow piled high with the moldering skeletons of men whose withered skin still hangs upon their bones. The idea is sailors would come by the island of the sirens and the sirens would sing this beautiful song and it would lure sailors in to see what was going on on the island and who these beautiful women singing this beautiful song were and they would go to their death. So she gives... uh, Odysseus a block of beeswax in order to stop up the ears of him and the sailors as they pass by the island of the sirens. And and that's a good idea. The problem is Odysseus, desiring to hear the sirens, does not block up his ears, but has all of the sailors with him block up theirs and fix him to the mast so that as the ship goes by, he still gets to hear the song. Now, that is the best that a lost person can do. The best you can do is put yourself into some kind of bondage and restraint to keep from fully exercising the desires of the flesh. By contrast, when Jason and the Argonauts encounter the sirens, a different scene entirely unfolds. Chiron the centaur had told Jason that he needed to have the musician Orpheus along for the quest. Remember, Jason and the Argonauts are on a quest for the Golden Fleece, right? And Chiron the centaur tells Jason, you need to get Orpheus along your band. So Jason recruits this unorthodox non-warrior, Orpheus, on the journey. When the Argonauts sail by the island of the Sirens, Orpheus takes out his harp and begins to play it. And there are two things happening here. First of all, Orpheus is a fantastic musician. Second of all, proximity is going on. The harp, the lyre of Orpheus, is closer to the sailors, closer to the Argonauts, than the siren song coming from the island. So Jason and the Argonauts under the music of Orpheus's harp, sail by the Siren Island without ever noticing what's going on there. This is a closer depiction of the life of the Christian. We have a more beautiful song and a closer one to our hearts than that of the tempter. The Holy Spirit within us leads us in paths of righteousness. Popular, licentious, evangelical thinking says, I'm free to go to that island. That's licentiousness. The gospel says you are free rather to stay right here in the presence of your father who loves you. 
Licentiousness claims that Christian liberty can dismiss the law entirely. The Bible says that the law always has a role in the life and in the heart of a believer. So my third point last Sunday was this. Paul indicates that these relationship-destroying sins, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, factions, and envy, he includes these, he includes those human relationship-destroying sins in the same list as all the evils which the legalistic church has historically detested. I'm not trying to make it classic literature Sunday, but I can't help it sometimes. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote, I think, the most beautiful, profound description of legalistic Christianity that has ever been created in his book, The Scarlet Letter. Here's a girl who is punished for her whole life, not so much for adultery, Not so much for having a child out of wedlock, but for refusing to name the father. She leads a life of charity and chastity, raising her daughter according to every religious principle that any Puritan would ever desire. And yet she is shunned because she won't admit who it was that impregnated her. And it turns out, hate to ruin it for you, it was the minister the whole time. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe from your spice rack and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Well, that's what Paul is talking about when he identifies all of the human relationship-destroying sins along with those which the hypocrite keeps as pet. This list of flesh deeds in Galatians 5 is no exception. So my challenge to us was simple. What kind of church will we be? Are we going to strain at gnats and swallow camels? Because rest assured, just like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, and carousing, those who take the license of dissensions, divisions, factions, or envy will not inherit the kingdom of God. The warning is to the body. Only the children of God inherit salvation purchased by Jesus Christ. And this means that not only must we be sexually pure, sober, and respectable, but we should be people who love one another as well. Well, that's harder to do. It is, believe it or not. And the person who contends with an addiction to drink or drug or sex might argue with me, but I assure you, if you could lay those sins down for five consecutive days and take up the call instead to love the brethren and go outside these four walls with that directive to love the brethren, you will find you are in woefully short supply of the provision of obedience. Because people suck. It says so in James 6. (laughs) 
There is no James 6. I thought it was Hezekiah. Yeah. We should be people who love one another, and we're going to see that in more detail today. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All right, I'll tell you three things about these. First, these are not deeds. These are fruit. Oh, wait. These are not deeds. This is fruit. Luke 6, 43. Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thistles, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Mark 7, 14. He called the people to himself and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing, listen to this science, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, let's be real clear. You can eat things that will make you quite sick. But to be spiritually defiled, that doesn't happen because of what you ate. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And my favorite, James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what the Bible is telling us is that from the nature of man comes the deeds of the flesh. Look right at me. I don't, and you don't, Need any help sinning? I saw a uh, during my normal time on TikTok yesterday. Uh, my favorite video of the day is two adorable, couldn't have been older than two and a half, maybe three year old children, a boy and a girl, brother and a sister, lips coated with blue frosting, denying to mom that either of them had eaten any cake. <laughs> unaware of what they look like, right? <laughs> Nobody has to teach a child to lie. They discover it themselves. Why? Because from within, in the heart, that's where sin is. And it's no different when you're 70. It's the same. It's from within you. 
The deeds of the flesh are the only thing the flesh can produce. From the Spirit of God comes the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot muster up these graces. Oh, what graces? Well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You cannot muster up these graces. You're not going to produce these. Because point two, the fruit is not ours. It is his. It's his fruit. John 15. Let's go there. I'll make you guys turn pages. John 15, right at the beginning, verse 1. This will be difficult for me uh, not to get distracted and preach another sermon entirely. But I'll... I'll promise you I won't venture off tangentially far. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. This is Jesus speaking. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What? Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. As the branch, what? Cannot bear fruit by itself? Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What's this about? It's about relationship and proximity. Right? Five. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Lord, I'm trusting you for a Corvette. No. I'm trusting you for the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I'm asking him for it. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So God has attached his own glory to you producing the fruit of the Spirit. Hallelujah for that, right? If you keep my commandments... Oh, wait, I skipped a bunch. Forgive me. Nine, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus did not, look, this is so important. Look right at me, please. Jesus did not come and live and suffer and hang on a cross and die. You can take this message out to all the Reformed Baptists. Jesus did not come and live and suffer and die and then come back to life again on the third day and ascend into heaven so that God would have one more reason to hate your guts. That is not why Calvary happened. It happened as an expression of the love of God. So Jesus says, Father loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I'm trying to, not by proof texting, but by just like weaving together for you this tapestry of the theme of the gospel. It is relationship, it's proximity, it's love, it's fellowship, and then love for one another. It's everywhere you look. It's not do this and you will live. It's believe on me and so be forgiven for your sins. Now, pruning hurts. Yeah, but it's proof that you're alive and the vine dresser is tending to you. God is always at work in the pain you endure as a Christian. The Christian bears spiritual fruit because they are part of the spiritual vine. Where there is insufficient produce, God cuts away. And there are three categories in your life that need pruning, not one. He's not just cutting away the dead detritus. Oh, this will blow your mind the first time you understand it. Three categories that need pruning. Good but not great, needs pruning. Sick and not going to get better, needs pruning. And then dead and not producing, obviously needs pruning. So what does it look like? Good, but not best. I mean, we're usually not surprised when God cuts out the detritus. There's things we know full well are not fruit and they're not going to make fruit and they just need to be gone from our lives, right? If you make regular trips to the casino and your credit report is starting to reflect that, that needs to be cut out. If you like to stay up after everybody else goes to bed and, you know, see what's on the internet, that probably needs to be cut out. It's dead. It's not making fruit. It's obvious. Those things are obvious. But we are sometimes surprised when God cuts away the good. This is what hurts the most. And we cannot see how this is helpful until sometimes years later, and sometimes we never see this side of eternity, how it's helpful. But I promise you, he is always at work in the painful places in your life. Amen. Always. Because it may be good, but he's got something better. Yeah. It's hard for us to identify what's sick. And oftentimes when we do identify what's sick, what we do, because we're hopeful people with attachment disorders, is we assume what's sick is going to get better. Right. This will be all right. This relationship, if I just keep tending it, if I just keep fertilizing it, if I just keep digging the soil up around it, it'll be okay. It will improve. And then lo and behold, God does something that cuts that out of your life and it guts you because you had such hope that that was going to work out. But the father knows better. It's sick and it's not getting better. So he prunes that we might bear And it's not plural, it's singular. 
Nine graces are listed, but he says one fruit. (coughs) Just as the fruit belongs to the Spirit, we will produce all of it. That's why he says one fruit. We'll produce the whole thing. There's not a grape vine in the world that makes half grapes. <laughs> they all make whole grapes or they make no grapes. But there's no like, it just, it's a half of a grape. It doesn't happen. So what I'd like to do, if you'll permit me, is I'd like to take this fruit and rather than describe it to you in terms of the core, the, the flesh, and the outer shell, which is, I'm sure, what all commentators and preachers do, because it, it's fruit, so that's how you, oh, this is what, so here's, here's the seeds. Now, what I would like to do is describe it in terms of music, in terms of song, just to be different. We're going to take this in three triads, okay? First, love, joy, and peace. Those are our first three. This is the inner heart of the believer. The inner heart of the believer is the rhythm, the tempo, and the feel This is just you. This is how you exist. This is how you live and move and have your being before God. It's the organization of your heart, the rhythm, the pulse. Does it swing or is it straight? Is the emphasis on beat one or is it on the backbeat? What are you like? The tempo, the speed is joy. The rhythm is love, the the tempo, the pace is joy, and the feel, the mood of the whole thing is what? Love, joy, peace. And you know it's true because in Psalm 23, as we're making our way through, I told you this vivid story, you're making your way through the valley. And you're being led by the good shepherd. And you hear footsteps behind you. And those make you kind of nervous. Until you turn and see that it's goodness and mercy following after you. Running after you. So the rhythm of your life, the pulse is love. The tempo is joy and the feel is peace. The mood is peace. And then the next three patience, kindness, and goodness. This is the outer heart of the believer. This is the harmonic structure of the spirit song. This is what others hear first in your life. When a song starts, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, it does not begin with the melody. What you hear are chords, you hear the rhythm established, you hear the tempo established, and then there are the chords that change. This is the harmonic structure. When other people look at you These chords thrum when your strings are struck. Patience when wronged. You are not, listen, you're not usually a patient person. When do you say that? When do we all say, I'm usually a patient person? We usually say it in those moments where we have just not been a patient person, right? Well, when do you need to be patient? When you're wronged. When you're offended, when your will and your desire is crossed up with reality. Patient when wronged, kindness when you would, left to yourself, return wrongs for wrongs done to you. 
So not only do you endure it graciously when somebody wrongs you, but you return kindness. This is not very reformed, is it? You're supposed to return shunning. Goodness when you encounter the evil which fills this present world. Are you that city set on a hill, shining your light for all to see? Goodness shines in an evil world, right? Matt Matheson talking about the place where we work uh, months and months ago said, because I was remarking at how much everybody there admires and respects him, uh, I think is an accomplishment in a lost and dying world mm-hmm. to hold to your principles and still be respected. Same goes for Matt Perry. They both, like the, you would think the Federal Reserve in Omaha ran on the backs of these two. Everybody loves them. But Matt Matheson said, well, Every shiny thing looks like a diamond when you're in a coal mine. (laughs) It's his explanation for why they revere him. Well, I think it's goodness when we encounter evil in the present world. And then faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The conduct of a believer is the melody of the Spirit's song. If I listen to your life song, is it all chaos and dissonance? Or is there structure? Does it make sense? Is there beauty to it? Is it dependable, tender, and measured? The, the fruit is broken up into three triads. The first three are the inner life, the, 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 the way that you think, the, the way that you feel and operate in your own thoughts and in your own mind. The second three are interactive. How do you treat other people? How do you deal with others? And then the last three are performative. What is your conduct like when no one is looking? What do you do? What is the melody of your song? And then he says, against such things, look at it. Galatians 5, 22, 23. Against such things, there is no law. You don't all have the benefit, some of you do, but you don't all have the benefit of having had to consult commentaries before, but I can assure you of this. Generally speaking, when a comment is most needed, the commentators are most absent. For whatever reason, they're just like, oh, well, that explains itself. It's a cop-out. And, and I went to my commentaries because I always have an instinct about these things, like what I think it is. And then the very next instinct I have is that's probably wrong. So let's go make sure somebody agrees with me. Well, they're silent. They don't say anything about this. It's just like, well, you know, you know what that means. Here's what I think it means. I think it means that the spirit never leads the believer in thoughts or conduct which are contrary to what has been commanded. So when somebody comes to me and says, I really feel like God is leading me to divorce my spouse. I really feel like you're wrong. Unless there's like, you know, look, if you're in a situation where you're, you're, you're being injured or are fearful for your life, get help. Not from me. I'm out of that business. Somebody with a gun and a badge, preferably. James doesn't do marriage counseling anymore. Sorry. I've been burned by that fire enough. Not going there. 
I mean, I'll direct you to the right. I'll make a phone call for you. But if you're in a situation where you're in danger, that's not the spirit leading you to divorce your spouse. That, that's, there's evil and sin and wickedness is going on that needs to be dealt with. And God has so designed our society that there are people who will come and deal with that. Usually when you hear somebody's being led to sin by the spirit, it, you know, it's pretty obvious. They're making excuses and taking license. But against these things, there's no law. Well, against what things? Fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against those things. You are free to do all of that that you want to do. What if there were a law against it? You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to stop doing it. Because we've seen that that's what the law does. The law says, don't do this. And then we're like, well, now I want to do that. Before the law said that, I was fine. Now I'm interested. You hear somebody whispering, somebody whose opinion about things you've never cared about. You see them whispering and suddenly you're intrigued. That's what the law does. It says, don't walk on my grass. And so you go, eh. If there were a law against these things, we would never quit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But there is no law against those things, so it's not in us to produce them. Whose fruit is it? It's the Lord's fruit. Now, if you would like to be part of the vine which produces these fruits, how do you become a Christian? Remember, there's two things. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Let's pray.